Well, good morning from London and welcome to a very special FS Club webinar today, uh, really on how biodiversity underpins economic prosperity. And we are delighted to have with us Professor Partha Dasgupta, who's uh, dialing in from Cambridge. We're going to have a wide-ranging discussion about this seminal report, uh, which came out in February. And we're absolutely delighted that uh, Professor Dasgupta, given <laughs> very heavy demands on his time, has been able to spend some time with us this morning. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zen Group. And it is really my privilege to be able to introduce so many of these webinars. And the only reason I can do so is thanks to the generosity and may I say tolerance of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics and finance. And what could be more important than the state of the world when we're trying to bind all three of those areas together? Now, uh, the usual format for the FS Club is that um, I try and get out of the way as quickly as possible, which I shall, uh, and hand over to uh, our speaker. Uh, Professor Descoupte and I are going to be in conversation for about 20 minutes about the, the background uh, to this report. Um, in the chat room, there are going to be a number of links put forward as well as on the website. So please feel free to really get your head around this one. It's extremely important. Um, and I just have three points of housekeeping, if I may. Uh, the first is that the recording will be up in approximately two working days, so uh, probably late on Thursday. Secondly, um, all of the materials are going to be available and kept there on the website. And thirdly, uh, please do use the GoToWebinar question facility to send me questions that I can feed into the discussion. Uh, please don't text me, email me, WhatsApp me, WeChat me or whatever, uh, because I'm here with you uh, and I won't get them till afterwards. All of your questions and comments will be sent uh, to Professor Descoupte afterwards. If you've got any uh, detailed comments or questions, please just send them through. Um, so with no further ado, I think it'd be uh, really quite good uh, to have a, a look um, at uh, what Professor Descoupte has done. Now, uh, Partha, you, um, you, your report is not the first in a series. I mean, we had uh, Constanza who brought out a report, I think, in 97 and 2014. Um, we also, of course, had the TEAB review between 2007 and 2011, but you took a fresh look at this space. So what, what, what led to this report being commissioned? Um, I can't anticipate uh, the intentions of the Treasury. I was asked to prepare a review of the economics of biodiversity. And I'll come back to the question of whether the title actually represents the, the contents of the book in a minute. But the main difference really is that it's not a state of the environment report. The ones you had mentioned as previous ones were really concerned with the state of the environment, state of the biosphere, if you like, the global level shrinking into um, local issues as well. This one is not about that, although, of course, the early chapters have to uh, deal with the state of the, give an account of the state of the environment, state of the biosphere, and we do that. The first four chapters are precisely aimed at doing that, but the rest of the 17 chapters have to do with analysis, economic analysis. So the idea was to embed the human economy in the biosphere. That's very different from the way we typically think about uh, the economics of nature, uh, say economics of climate change, you sort of bring, graft the climate model onto it, a standard model of economics, and then look for a damage function, look, you know, estimate how much it will cost the economy if temperature goes up uh, above what it is now, 
and then work out some solution to an optimization problem. We don't do that. So that's first point. Second, uh, it makes a huge difference, by the way, in conceptualizing uh, the human economy in the biosphere. Second and the final point about this is that the it's really not about biodiversity per se. It's about the biosphere. It should ideally the, the correct title would be the economics of the biosphere. So it's about all encompassing subject as you can imagine. Hmm. And uh, you know, one of the things that was interesting about your report was that you made such great efforts to communicate it. I mean, uh, you know, a number of critics spend time kind of saying, well, you know, 610 pages and it hasn't gotten there. But you not only brought out the, the full report, you also brought out 103 pages of bridge. And then you went to an enormous effort, bring out a, a, a fantastic 10-page, uh, you know, headlines, which I, all three of which I thought were were superb and, and fed, fed well together. Um, why did you make so much effort to make sure it was communicated like that? Well, uh this is a subject that is, I mean, it's just sort of consumed me for about four decades. Now, it's not the case that I was thinking along the lines of this review all this period, goes without saying I wasn't. I was looking at bits and pieces of it. But this was a time when I really gave some serious integrated thinking to the, to the work that I had done and learned a lot in addition. Um, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity of putting together a what I like to think is a new view of, uh, of, of the, economy, uh, the human economy, uh, whether the human economy is a small village or whether the human economy is a nation or whether the human economy is the globe as a whole. So it had to contend with this huge range of spatial uh, differences uh, in, in spatial structures of economies. So it was, and if I just wrote it for economists, that would not do. The idea was to communicate to uh, the concerned citizen. In fact, the book addresses the concerned citizen. And so she needs to know whether her intuitions about the world are correct. Yeah. And to a large extent, it is. They are. It's that uh, te technical economics has persuaded her otherwise. So the aim of the review is to address the concerned citizens so that, so that she can take charge by urging uh, her uh, government to take action over, uh, or her community to take action over all these issues. Well, um, I feel embarrassed asking you to do this because you must have done this many times, but not all of our listeners will have uh, read it. So would you mind just summarizing just a, a few of the findings of the review? Well, the first finding is not mine in the sense that it comes from the earth sciences and ecology, is that the demands we make on the biosphere in the aggregate far exceeds the biosphere's ability to supply them, meet the, those demands on a sustainable basis. Okay, uh, That means we're eroding an extraordinarily large chunk of our capital assets, in fact, the basis of our lives namely the biosphere. So that's the starting point. Uh, but in the process of doing that, of course, we point out that uh, the biosphere can be thought of as a gigantic mesh of ecosystems. So we're not talking about biomass. We're not talking about carbon. 
We're talking about ecosystems and the, their functions as to what they deliver. The health of ecosystems is what we're concerned with, not so much biodiversity, although biodiversity is a bit like, um, there are some similarities to diversity of financial portfolios. And diversity is good because then you know you ease on, you know, it becomes more resilient to your, your portfolio. Likewise, biodiversity properly defined uh, get, get, uh, is a factor in the health of an ecosystem. And so it's the health of an ecosystem that we study, of ecosystems we study. Uh, by health, I mean the ability to uh, produce the many, many uh, goods and services on the basis of which our economies function, okay? So already you've moved you away from the notion of a single metric, mm -hmm. like carbon concentration or carbon emission, to a plethora of, of uh, services, uh, climate regulation being one, of course, but there are many others. Nitrogen fixation is another. Uh, decomposition of waste is a third, and so forth. There's just huge numbers of services that go undetected in the normal course of events. And the idea is to bring them into the economy. Because they go undetected, they're unpriced, often zero, very often negative, because we subsidize the use of natural capital. Governments do that to the tune of four to six trillion dollars a year. So we're, we're looking at a huge mismanagement of our asset base. And so the, the message is, get that right. And of course, already I've given you hints as to how to get what needs to be done at the local level, national level, and international. Well, this is, it's a great unifying uh, approach here, trying to make sure that the economics of the sound, yeah. Um, Bob McDowell uh, makes a nice comment here. He wonders if it, if you might have had more impact if you'd serialized your report over a year for each of the chapters, but uh, really keeping attention. Very kind of you, Bob. Um, Christopher Gleedle uh, has a point, which I think is, you know, uh, about the second item here. How does this review link our economies to nature? He says the measurement of the value of flows of ecosystem services from biodiversity and the human interventions that interrupt those flows and break the feedback loops from which the natural world creates abundance. You know, do you feel measurement of economic profit to understand the value of natural capital foregone from decisions could be a guide to creating feedback in human decision making? Yes, I guess that's uh, almost in, uh, certainly right. Um, the, I think the, the interesting question to me has been why has it been so badly neglected? So uh, the, the fact that we are taking material from nature it's part of our asset base and yet we don't regard it so we think it's infinitely large so that you can tap into it and uh and it's not really going to do very much i mean in the sense it will it'll, it, it will not it will not be uh, disturbed uh, i have not really got a good answer to it um, one possibility is that because nature is mobile and of course, that's the source of much of the difficulties for the economist, because uh, a harm that is created spreads into the distant lands. Um, so those are the externalities, we call it, and that's the medium by which the externalities uh, are, are created. But also nature is silent in many cases uh, and invisible. Mm. Now, that's one reason we neglect the soils, for example. And the soils are an amazing uh, ecosystems. You know, just uh, a variety of soils and so forth. So that means, in some sense, it's easy to uh, ignore it. 
But of course, the point is it's free. Much of it is free. There are no property rights to it because of the mobility uh, causes. The externalities are a reason for it. But that doesn't give in, uh, explain why we economists shouldn't have detected it because we are used to thinking in terms of externalities, public goods, uh, free rider problem. These are sort of common terms in my profession. Um, but they loom very large in this field. And there are some of these exceptional reasons that I've just now mentioned, including the one that's just been pointed out, that uh, these ecosystems, are, the processes are highly nonlinear. And nonlinearity really means that uh, at a deep level, the pricing mechanisms won't do. The entire construction of the price system as an overarching way of resource, maintaining resources, um, resource allocation, guiding resource allocation, are built on the idea that your the economy is not nonlinear in the sense of the ecologist uh, or, uh, or uh, earth sciences. Uh, we call it convexity, but that's a different matter. It's, it's uh, so we really need to get used to the idea of regulations because they have to uh, sub supplant prices. You can get away with prices in many, many cases, that's for sure. And one of the things that the review does is to try and see where prices can be uh, created, if you like. There, we call them accounting prices, not market prices, but accounting prices, or shadow prices, some people call it. And where, in fact, you need regulations. And re by regulations, I mean protected zones, you name it, that sort of thing. Quantity restrictions, if you like. Right, and, and, it would, and pricing as well, I guess, would fit into regulation, a structured pricing mechanism for, for things. Yes, of, of course, you're quite right. I mean, when I say pricing, I meant price is independent of quantity. Okay, yeah. Regulations are nonlinear prices, if you like. Steep, steep nonlinearities. No, I was, I was telling you, of course, you're used to the, the phrase that nature is silent, reminds me, of course, of Rachel Carson and, you know, Silent Spring and also, but that's the point, it doesn't shout. I and mean, you and I were also talking in the in the green room beforehand about, you know, pelagic fish who, you know, wander freely and and therefore uh, uh, are, are having their own difficulties, sadly. Um, one of the things, that, one of the best quotes, or certainly a, a very popular quote uh, from the report was that the, uh, the economics of biodiversity becomes a study in asset management, uh, and that should be no surprise. We are all asset managers pretty much all of the time, and that, that pops up. So you've kind of got this kind of asset management uh, viewpoint, uh, which is, I think, super. Bob McDowell says, a change in managing the asset base has to be implemented on a phase basis. You know, broadly, how would you phase these changes nationally, regionally, and globally at the same time ensuring broad buy-in? Look, the ideal scenario is the following. Uh, that's what really economics is all about at one deep level. It's to try and find institutional arrangements such that they limit what each of us can do, all right, such that the what we are able to do, what we are entitled to do, in line with our motivations, lead us to take actions which are consonant with the common good okay that doesn't mean each of us is trying to serve the common good it doesn't it's our motivations but there's a way of guiding our choices such that they cohere our choices cohere in such a way that we don't um we don't destroy take the ex extreme example we don't destroy the biosphere okay that's the aim that's the aim of economics actually 
and if you wanted to distill it into its final point. So taxation, quantity restrictions, and so forth are ways of trying to get the get the institutions to pose feasible sets, you know, what we can choose from in such a way that given our individual motivations, our life wants and needs and preferences, uh, we choose in a way that uh, is not discordant. That is to say, they don't lead to these externalities. We eliminate those externalities that we're thinking about. So that's the idea. Okay. Now, it will have to be done in various ways at different levels. And the review goes into communitarian ar arrangements at the local level where over and over again, there are several chapters showing how the state can get things extremely wrong. And there, there are the, tons of evidence of that, you know, really rich empirical work uh, to bolster communities, or in, in this part of the world, we would call it civil society. Mm -hmm. So there's chapters on social capital, that sort of thing, because those are institutional mechanisms by which local communities can handle their local things. Uh, the idea is not top down, it's not bottom up, but the idea is every which way, because the, the biosphere is a mesh of ecosystems operating at vastly different spe speeds and vast and operating at vastly different scales. So there is no the idea that you know there is a command system. No, is there the idea that everything comes from below? No, it has to be done. Reach the information flow has to go all the way. The national level, of course, many many things can be done. The idea would be asset management really means you want to stick to the idea of rates of return on investment. The problem is that the, those, the rates of return we compute are not social rates of return, they're private rates of return, which have nothing to do with it, given the fact that so many of these assets have no price. Okay, so we, our investment put strategies are, to, are, are, are biased against nature. So it's, it's, it's really intuitively absolutely obvious if these are free goods, why are we going to invest in them? Mm. We will take to invest in other things. So that's why we have essentially the history of the past 200 years has been one in which we have eroded nature yeah. uh, in order to uh, build up uh, manufactured capital, produce capital, human capital, and so forth. So that's, that's the imbalance in our portfolio. And so the idea is not to think in terms, it's not that you don't want to think about rates of return or net present value. That's fine. That's exactly right. The thing is that the ingredients of these net present value calculation are wrong. A lot of things are missing. Yeah. I hope that sort of ties up what I've been saying previously, that the idea is to create this institution such that the signals individuals receive enable them to choose in accordance with their own desires. Uh, but they're not discordant. It's it's interesting. Uh, Richard Burge, who is uh, head of the London Chamber of Commerce, but in a previous life, uh, London Zoo, uh, wonders, uh, you know, is Professor Descripta being a little too generous on the reasons why biodiversity has been ignored by business? You know, as you say, it's free and business, and business is an easily externalized cost like uh, pollution or smoking. Uh, but there's been a powerful incentive not to open the box and peek in it. Uh, and it took, uh, he says, it took a socially motivated economist like you to do that. Um, related, of course, to this asset management approach are a whole host of tools that we use in finance uh, and in the financial services industry. And Mike Clark, who's uh, coming out of the insurance sector, uh, and I know is a very close reader of your report because he says, when I talk about the implications of the professor's work, I say that biodiversity 
is the biosphere's strategic risk management policy, uh, which I think is a great one. Um, but he's curious, you know, how good are economists at risk management and modeling tipping points? This asset management approach uh, assumes some type of, of competence in that sector. And he was also curious if you had a view on the level of the social time preference discount rate, which is, you'll remember, dominated uh, to many degrees uh, the, the Stern Review uh, back in 2007. Well, far be it from me, I'm really incompetent to judge the quality of work in uh, in mathematical finance. I haven't I haven't really published in in that field. Uh, what I do know is that one of the problems we economists face, and I think all disciplines face, is being limited by technical uh, available technical uh, skills, if you like. Or I, mean, I don't mean human capital skills. It's it. Uh, we don't have the, the mathematics or techniques available yet for handling certain types of problems. So, for example, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to track nonlinear processes, stochastic processes, uh, is hard. It's really very hard that we don't have really adequate uh, tools yet. So um, much of finance got into trouble 20, 20 years ago. Uh, because it was using um, tools, uh, assuming that the prices were following certain processes, which they were not. <laughs> and in some sense, technique, limitations of technique was determining what questions you could ask. And that's a very dangerous thing to happen. Uh, I think we should be bold enough to go into allied disciplines to get insights about the way the world works if our own techniques, techniques can't do it. Well, let me give you one very simple example, which can be easily missed in the review because it's unusual, which is that much of economics really assumes that we are egoists. We are all egoists. All the map models that governments use are our own treasury model as based on the idea we are egoists when we estimate demand functions for goods and services, for example, that's required, required for, for income expenditure uh, studies. Uh, we're egoists. That is to say, it's a view of life in the supermarket. You go into the supermarket, you have prices, you choose your best basket given your income and your tastes and so forth. Okay, uh, But of course, the, the origins of our preferences are not really studied. And the fact that, I mean, it really, this, 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 uh, isol the, the, this model doesn't explain why there are fads and fashions, why men tend to wear similar clothes. Like you are Michael, you've got a, a trousers, sh shirt, and so have I. Why aren't we very completely different? Uh, there are many reasons, but one of them is that, of course, we conform. And that is very hard to uh, uh, track down given econometric techniques that have been uh, developed to date. The reason is very straightforward I'm influencing you, you're influencing me. So my preference for something depends on prices, of course, my income and many other things besides, but it also depends on the preference, your preferences. And your preference depends on mine. So you've got this mutual relationship, which is very hard to uh, disentangle econometrically. So where do I go? I have a whole chapter on this, by the way. Mm. And this is not only over consumption patterns, over fertility decisions. So there's a whole chapter on this, on these 
are socially embedded preferences. So where do I go for empirical confirmation? I had to go to anthropologists, I had to go to psychologists, I had to go to historians, because there's a tons of literature on that. And I mean, if you really want to go to town, go to homework and read the Odyssey, and you will see absolutely clear-cut evidence of the fact that consumption is a social activity. Well, and you can't explain feasts otherwise, <laughs> you know, or inns and pubs and so forth. So true. Okay, so that's, I don't know, that's a long-winded way of answering your question, but the question was extremely powerful. I, I couldn't resist saying this because it's something that can be easily missed in the review. Yes, yes. Well, it's uh, <laughs> our prime minister seems to think that the return of the pub signals the entire return of the economy. So I, <laughs> I think you're in good company there. Um, there. There are quite a few questions, actually, or comments about the uh, social discount rate here. Um, I, and uh, I, I, we could dwell on that for hours, but I'll just read a few out, but might want to move on. Uh, Ray Wylock Chong uh, is curious about temporal discounting. You know, what if our present practice is sustainable? over uh, say two generations so that's you know and i think that leads to a lot of the difficulty we have with we must do something now and some of these firm targets are somewhat contra to the approach of much of our community which tends to be model and data-based um bob mcdowell is kind of you know how do you ensure calibration of the implementation so that initiatives do not proceed too quickly or too slowly in relation to to other initiatives and a tremendous amount of faith, therefore, in uh, the use of of, um, of our economic uh, system to, to solve the problem. Um, but I think there's a, an interesting point here. Uh, Andrew Shaw says, the review uh, suggests that banks and regulators need, and he's quoting, global standards underpinned by credible decision-grade data. Um, could you give an example of decision-grade data and where the responsibility to provide such data resides? Uh, which is kind of interesting because uh, we had a report from the City of London Corporation that came out yesterday looking at US and UK cooperation on climate change and it just came back at more data, more data, more data, more comparability, uh, common taxonomies. But uh, it, where, where does this decision grade data come from? Um, I, could, I wouldn't be able to give you the uh, historic origins of it, but I can tell you what I, the, the, the review uh, points to. Um, in an ideal system of pricing, uh, that's the textbook economic model of the human economy, uh, you would need disclosure because the prices will reveal, will have picked up all the information that's required, uh, that's needed in order to, for resource allocation purposes. Okay, So the consumer knows what he's buying or she's buying, and she's paying a price and she doesn't have to worry about what happens to the source of the product, that is to say, let's the ecosystem, which is, let's say, coffee beans. Okay, all right. And then these coffee beans are imported here and then transformed into packets of coffee, which we buy. All right. So the entire supply chain, you don't need to know anything about the supply chain because the price that you're paying will have picked up all the costs along the way. Problem arises, as we've repeatedly said in this interview, that's not on, that, that model is not, is, is not relevant here. So, Disclosure would be a substitute for an imperfect price system. Okay, um, just as it is now today, we care about our health. Now you're asking, where's the where's the responsibility? Well, it ultimately will be the citizen. That's for sure, because without us, the governments won't act, and without us, the private sector won't act. In the sense, I'll make clear in a minute. We care about our health today enormously, personal health. So we want to know what we're eating. Now consider 
the difference between the packaging today as compared to packaging of the same food product or a similar food product 30 years ago. It has a huge disclosure of the food content. Why? Because we are insisting on that. All right. Somebody has, we as, a, as consumers, we have insisted on it. We want to know how much sugar, salt, you name it, is out there. So it's being disclosed. Now, suppose we care about the biosphere because we feel that it's really causing risks, inflicting risks on us in the, the decline of biospheric productivity, all right, and for the production side. Then we would insist that firms disclose the, the entire supply chain. What's happening in the supply chain? What's the state of the ecosystem from which the, the product is originates? All right. What deals you have made with the government there? Because governments in these countries are not exactly innocent babes in the wood either. All right. So we are looking at serious political economy issues here. And I think we ought to be upfront about it. So the question is, what's the incentive of a firm per private company to go in for all this? Well, it seems to me there are several. I mean, we've gone into this in the review at some length. One is you could be, there might be first mover advantages in disclosing because you gain your reputation for being clean. That we know we are doing this, we are doing that, we are protecting the, uh, uh, the ecosystem from which we are getting our products uh, and so forth. On the other hand, of course, you disclosure also means that you have to put in more money in terms of actually, because somebody is going to check whether you're, you're being truthful. And so you that invest. So there's a loss in profits, maybe. Let's take that extreme case. So you've got to weigh these two things. An easier thing would be if the firms actually got together and appealed to the government to make it mandatory. Now that's like saying we are going to tie our hands, but the tying of our hands is a very common practice for improving your your long-term productivity. I mean, your profits. Yeah. That's not a new thing. I mean, it's when when the, government, the public the public says. This is the common property resource. Make it, uh, make it state, or charge a rent on it. Uh, that's tying our hands because we are now paying more. But we are doing that in order to protect the thing, and therefore making it possible for future generations, or at least we in the future can exploit it. So that's kind of move that the uh, the the, uh, the uh, review um, uh, goes for. That is to say. The declining productivity of biosphere, particularly in the in and since so much of the uh, biodiversity is in the tropics, and they are the, typically the poorer countries, they are the source of primary products on the basis of which the entire uh, world trade system is founded. Um, it's extremely important for companies to um, to ensure that the, uh, the 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 productivity of those. Um, ecosystems doesn't de doesn't decline, but of course each individual uh, firm can't do very much about it, and that's of course where the tension arises, and that's the tension that the, whole, the review is really trying to uh, come to terms with. And one suggestion is that actually it's in our interest to collectively, I mean, when I say we, I mean the companies collectively, to say, look, tie our hands because that way I'll trust the others to do the same thing as I'm doing. Otherwise, <laughs> if I do it unilaterally. I'll be a sucker, maybe, except for the possibility of being the first mover advantage. That's always a possibility that you build up your reputation for being biological, you know, biodiversity conscious and so forth, and, and uh, taste change that you never never know in in the near future. Uh, customers may become so keen on biodiversity protection. I hope that's true. Then, of course, we'll be guided towards that. So ultimately, it'll be us, we consumers, not the company.
and I think that the, the line that the review takes, it's a, it's a very, um, I guess it's a real conviction of democracy at work, that's the need for democracy, serious, serious, free press, ability to be able to call the shots and not feel you're uh, insulting anybody. I think it's it's kind of music to my ears. Uh, you know, you're ultimately this report should be music to our community's ears. You're you're trying to use competition. You're trying to use the pricing mechanism. You know, that these are the ways to go, not just sort of awareness and uh, uh, data. It's the actual use of that data. Uh, Hugh Purser was, you know, curious about your views on direct behavior change, and I think that very much answers that question there. Andrew Ross is an interesting uh, specific example. He says the Chinese have calculated gross ecosystem product to value in Qinghai, the water tower of Asia, uh, and are applying it to value infrastructure planning in downstream industries and cities. Is this the type of model that you were looking forward to? Yeah, very much so. There'll be variations on this theme, goes without saying. Uh, different countries will have different database and abilities and so forth, and they're, they're, they're sitting on different kinds of ecosystems. I can't, the review can't predict which way it will go, uh, which what different countries will have to do. It's really the, the review really attempts to provide a grammar, a common grammar for thinking about this issue. Okay, uh, the what the review does is to talk about inclusive wealth. And that's a very purist, a purified notion of what the Chinese are doing. Um, which is to say that if it's an asset management problem, ask yourself what does it, what, what do firms do, com companies do? They have balance sheets. Now nations don't have balance sheets, and that's very odd, given the fact that we, every household, hands over to the next generation assets, home, shares, or whatever, land in the case of farming communities, everything. So you're really handing over assets. So it really should be capital asset inventories of assets that should be recorded at the national level and the mm. international level now because of these comments we're talking about. And that's exactly what ecological economics tries to do. And that's when we talk about the asset, you know, there's an asset management problem. Yeah, if you have snaps and manual problem, really you ought to be measuring that. So inclusive wealth is estimating the wealth of a nation, taking into account that it's not that wealth is not only produced capital and human capital, which is conventional wisdom in economics, but also natural capital. And instead of GDP, which is a flow and does not take into account depreciation, you should have wealth accounts. And wealth accounts means that if, if wealth, if some natural capital depreciates, then the wealth will have declined a little bit correspondingly. Okay, so that handles the depreciation issue and the depreciation of natural capital in particular. So yes, that's that's the line. And that's, your starting point is the inclusive wealth. Now, shortcuts have to be made, goes out saying. And I think the Chinese are doing that kind, a, a shortcut, a very in, intelligent kind of shortcut uh, that suits their purposes. Mm. Yeah, I'm getting a, a few a few slaps from the audience. Mike Clark is uh, cautioning me. Uh, he, he agrees with the idea of tying our hands. Uh, he also makes it, he's got a lovely little uh, catchphrase here that, uh, uh, just bear with me a minute here, um, that uh, yes, it's, it's society, uh, has basically been uh, the, the yes. Sorry, here we are. Yes, the uh, we we have been binning the invoices uh, of the biodiversity costs that we failed to achieve. So um, interesting stuff here. Um, Alan Mayo um, points out he's wondering if uh, wouldn't a system based on ISO standards 
also be uh, helpful if it was you know fully accredited um, and I and I think there's some interesting elements there uh, Mike Clark was pushing me you know clearly on regulations as well to tie our hands I mean I see personally all of this in the mix and I assume you do too or is that is that a bit naive oh absolutely right uh, tying our hands could be in very many you can have different types of courts right I mean having a tax a carbon tax is tying your hands because you're basically saying I'm willing to pay more uh, for the emission. Okay. So there could be that. It could be quality controls. It could be all sorts of things. The proposal, for example, of uh, having 30% of land and sea as protected zones is a form of tying your hands. Uh, but the, uh, the, the moment I heard about it, I immediately said, well, what happens to the rest of the 70%? Okay, you protected 30%, but we economists are one thing we're really good at is to try to figure out unintended consequences of policies so having 30 percent protected zone is a darn good idea should be probably even more wilson great ecologist that he is suggested half earth okay that's 50 percent all right but uh then you need to worry a lot about what happens to the other the, the remaining bit and then i would say that economics of biodiversity the, my review is really about the other the 70 percent recognizing that 30 percent is off limits that's very important um elizabeth wrigley is curious about the thoughts on you know the handover of genetic assets to future generations like you know the seeds of biodiverse plant ranges uh, ben koppelman is curious about any thoughts you might have on rewilding um, you know, I, I've always been quite keen as well in the oceans on, on set-aside areas. So uh, just any thoughts about that? Well, very much so. Yeah, the, at the community level, I think at the urban community level, one of the first things we would do is we should do as citizens, and we are doing it in this country, certainly in my neighborhood in Cambridge in a big way, is screening the local environment. Uh, no question about it. It's uh, That's a very, very strong way of handling things. In many countries, it gets destroyed, not because the community doesn't care. The community cares down a heck of a lot, because that's it, their lives depend on it. It's because others intervene. The state might intervene, uh, and typically does, uh, claiming land which is now state property, whereas it used to be community property. So we've seen enormous transformation in, uh, in institutions, particularly in Africa, South Asia, which is where I come from. Uh, in Latin America, of course, in a big way, where the state has been actually very destructive of natural capital, uh, because the 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 information base uh, of communities is often far greater than the, the information base that the that the state has. These are local ecosystems. It's extremely important to recognize the biosphere is not homogeneous. It's extremely site-specific. Uh, that is precisely why the review does not talk about biomass or um, markets for biomass because it will be insane to do a thing like that. A unit of biomass in the Amazon is not the same as a unit of biomass in the tundra. And you know, uh, offsetting markets would be a disaster for 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 biodiversity. So we don't go that route at all. In fact, there's no mention of it. Instead, we have built it on ecosystems as assets and the productivity of the ecosystem. And the people who know about it, of course, are people on the ground plus ecologists. So one of the real I mean, implicit recommendations is that ecologists really should be uh, should be there even in ministries of finance, um, because every every ministry of a government ought to be recognised that their actions have an effect on the biosphere. 
So the calculations they do of net present value or rates of return on education, you name it, no matter what the investment is, should have a nature component to it. Um, and to have that, you need expertise of what makes for a healthy ecosystem because ecosystems differ across space like crazy. Uh, and it's a very loose term ecosystem because it's uh, depending on the context, it could be the garden pond, it could be the open seas, it could be anything, uh, which, you know, which is a well-defined, uh, in some sense well-defined, not very precisely defined, but it's a very useful concept. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, uh, I think, the, well, the main recommendation here at the government level would be having a nature study test at, for every project mm. be included, because otherwise we are missing out the rate of return calculation. So we're back to the question you began with, which is, uh, is this about asset management? And the answer is absolutely, down the line. Um, I've got time, uh, time is always pressing, uh, for, for three uh, quick questions, if I might. Um, the first one, uh, a number of people, Hugh Burson, Mike Clark and others are, are asking, any thoughts on what this means about our focus uh, on GDP? Straightforward. GDP is very, very useful for short-run macroeconomic management problems because the, uh, the aim of GDP is to measure economic activity. The size of economic activity is extremely important, but it should not be used for sustainability analysis. It should not be used for judging the progress or regress of nations or economies. It's just not on. It's what should be used is inclusive wealth, as I was describing it before. In other words, an, a, a, it's something like a balance sheet. Um, Marcus Johnson uh, reminds me of something. Every time I've been discussing uh, the environment over many years, I always go back to that old iPad equation from 1970, that uh, impact equals population times yeah. affluence times technology, and everybody focuses on affluence and technology, but population is that big dark elephant in the room. And Marcus Johnson says, I agree the creation of property rights could lead to better resource allocation and regulation may work with externalities, but the most difficult problem is the right to reproduce. You know, what is the maintainable number of humans and how do we get there? Any thoughts on that? Review has a lot on that because we start with the iPad equation, but it's not an equation. iPad is simply saying, what's our impact, okay? And it was decompos decomposed into these three quantities right. that you mentioned, and I followed that. Uh, but on the right-hand side of the equation is the supply side. What can bi the biosphere provide? And what, when I began by saying that our demand outstrips the supply, it meant this, this was the impact inequality, which is in chapter four. It's absolutely central to the review. And of course, each of these three factors on the left-hand side, the demand, needs to be studied. And they're related to each other. They're not independent of each other. And we give enormous importance to N, the, the population, um, particularly at the moment. I mean, it's, it's a seriously important problem, but it's elided uh, mostly. I don't know why there's some cultural problems people have around here. Um, but do read chapter nine. That's where we discuss it. Um, it has to do with family planning. Uh, it's extremely important because the source of the problem is going to be now in Africa in the next 30, 40 years because the, uh, they're far away from a fertility transition in Africa. Uh, it's, uh, total fertility rates are about 4.2 or so, and 2.1 is about replacement level. So we are far off there. And if you look from the Africans' point of view, and that's the right measure, it's for their future, it's extremely important 
that the, the governments take family planning seriously. And it's extremely important for aid, the donor countries, to take family planning seriously because it ties up with also empowerment of women. Over 200 million women today do not have access to family planning and have expressed a desire for it. Demographers have been working on this at full speed for a long while, but nobody listens to demographers. For some cultural reason or the other, we in the West feel this is taboo. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the review goes into it at some considerable length. There's a lot of that. I was uh, doing a lecture at UCL and calculating what various initiatives could matter. It doesn't sort of matter what they were, but number six on my list of saving the planet was educating women. Uh, and it's yes, just sure, right. world. absolutely fine. But yeah. the thing is that family planning is a low hanging fruit. It's very cheap and we haven't used it. We are not exploited it enough in this exploited in the sense of offering that service to the poorest women on earth. And they need it desperately. And uh, the OECD countries, their proportion of uh, foreign aid going to family planning is less than 1%. Yeah. It's really absurd. I mean, I can't believe it. But when I saw the data, it was just, um, what can I say? Uh, well, as ever, I've got to conclude with, and you, you, can, you can kind of see this question coming, but COP26 is ahead. It's uh, all eyes on the UK, all eyes on Treasury. Uh, and then this amazing review that you've put so much hard work into with such a great team. Uh, what, what are your aspirations for the next steps? Next steps is really to blend climate change into the, my review in the sense that it's one of the multitude of services Mother Nature is supplying us with, concentrating on one at the expense of all others, which is what the received uh, climate change literature, the economics of climate change, literature gives us has been an extremely unfortunate uh, fact because these services are complementary to one another. They are not substitutes. They're not independent. So if you bring one down sufficiently, the whole house of cards falls apart. The biospheric house, it's not quite a house of cards. It's pretty robust, but we are so clever, we humans, that you know, there's an expression in England called you can be too clever by half. Yes. That's what we are. We are so clever that we can destroy the biosphere if we choose to, and we are in the process of doing that. So I'd like to see COP15 and 26 merge. We really need an integrated view of the biosphere, not just one component of it. That's been a really sad item in our intellectual progression because the average person, if you ask him what uh, the environment consists of, climate change. Mm. Well, that's but you know the whole lot of others are just ignored well that's a great note on which to end uh, it was a russell that you know the sign of a great intellect is the ability to keep two conflicting ideas at the same time and we need to unify those because it may be too 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 clever by half but that's not what we want to be we want to be practical and i really appreciate that uh, Parth, it's been so good to have you here. If you just hold on a second, sadly, I, I do have to close down, and I'll do so if I may with uh, three rounds of thanks. Uh, firstly, very much to our sponsors. Uh, secondly, very much uh, to the audience today. You've been particularly vibrant and incisive. I've got a number of things here. Got stuck on the report at Chapter 3, so now inspired to fish, finish it, says uh, Alan Mayo. Uh, Elizabeth Wrigley would like us to get women ecologists who understand family planning. Um, uh, we had a lovely comment from Mike Clark about bidding invoices. We've incurred the cost, but not paid for the bills. 
And Bob McDowell is kind of sees that maybe the idea here is not to measure biodiversity. Uh, real success here is that biodiversity is a way of life. So a lot, a lot of a lot of good comments, and we'd really like to thank you for your time today. Um, sure. So I'm, I'm unable uh, using modern technology to open the floodgates of applause that you so rightly deserve. Uh, but we, we hope uh, that uh, you've inspired many of the audience out here to read this report. This is a very valuable report. And as I said earlier, you can start at 10 pages, you can move to 103, or you can do 610. Um, I enjoyed all of them, and I, I thoroughly uh, commend this report to the audience and hope that uh, they pick it up and spread the message. Uh, if nothing else, share the 10-pager with your children, share the 10-pager with your families, share the 10-pager with your colleagues. But uh, Partha, I have here my Korean karmic clapper, which is my substitute for applause, uh, but hopefully it too is sustainable. Um, and I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. You've been very, very kind and generous. It's a pleasure, an honor. Good to see you again. Likewise.